Today's scripture comes from Jonah 3.10 and all of Jonah 4. As you listen, intentionally reflect on what the author meant when he penned these words almost 2,000 years ago and how that same message can apply to us this morning here at Veritas. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should, I not, and should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we, we come to you this morning just uh, longing to learn from you, desiring to be transformed, and God, we just see in this, in this passage um, some of the most radical and amazing grace in all of your word. Lord, I pray that you would just capture our hearts here this week as we, we finish up the book of Jonah. Lord, transform us, Lord, with a, with a sober understanding of who we are, how we see ourselves in Jonah, Lord, how we are rebellious and angry how you are gentle and kind and loving, pursuing us because of your overflowing, abundant grace, Lord. Let our hearts be softened this morning, Lord. Let us hear what you have to say to us, and let us never be the same. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You guys can have a seat. Well, welcome to Veritas. My name's Brad Snyder. I'm uh, the lead pastor, teaching pastor here of the uh, Tri-Village campus. And a couple quick announcements before we get started. Uh, the first one is, if you are a volunteer in the child care ministry, um, all the way from the elementary school kids, all the way down to the toddlers, if you're volunteering in that ministry, or if you hope to get more involved, or desire to get involved, or if you possibly are considering to get involved and serve in that area, there's going to be a training meeting next Sunday at 8 a.m. Uh, here 
here before we get started for the gathering. So if you're able to be there, let me really encourage you to come, be here at eight, and they're gonna be going through all the training about what we do here, how that works, what our, our vision and philosophy and ministry is, and, and all the practicals um, for serving that. So let me urge you, um, if you're willing to serve in that area, to, uh, to come early. That's next week, April 29th at 8 a.m. Um, and another quick announcement, um, and this is definitely for many of you here that I know are, are new to Veritas or new to this campus. You've been coming for the past couple months and are really trying to discern and figure out, is this going to be my home church? Is this where I want to invest in and put down roots? Um, well, coming up on uh, April 28th and 29th, sorry, 27th and 28th, we have our Veritas Foundations course. And basically what that is, is that's our, our prerequisite class for membership, but it's also just a class that we dig into the gospel, we dig into what we believe as a church, what our, our vision is, where we're headed, where we're going, what we're doing, and why we do it. So if you're, if you're new here, if you're considering membership, or if you don't even know, let me urge you to plan on going to that class. It's gonna be at the Short North Building, and it's gonna be April 27th to 28th. That's a Friday and a Saturday. It starts at 6.30 p.m. on Friday and goes to about 9. And then Saturday morning, it goes from 9 until noon. And let me urge you uh, to go to that class. It really is fantastic. And hopefully it'll answer a lot of questions and uh, help you understand what it looks like for you to get more involved um, here at Veritas. Well, this week we're, uh, we're finishing up the book of Jonah. We're about halfway through our, our sermon series on redemption songs. And, and next week we're going to be starting our look into the book of Nahum. And so this is, a, this is an exciting Sunday for us because we're digging into this extremely radical book of Jonah. And, and the thing that's pretty amazing here is how radically intense God's grace has been throughout this entire book. We've seen his grace be poured out to rebellious, unbelieving sailors, to a rebellious prophet that rose up against God and ran from him to this city that was the most evil and sinful and violent city on earth. And then now we actually get to see all of this come into a climax here in Jonah 4. We get to see God's radical grace come once again in a shocking way and bring about transformation. And now let me also kind of share something a little bit about myself, um, which I realized this week was one of the th reasons why I love this book so much. Um, and it's actually something that drives my wife crazy. Many things about me drive my wife crazy, um, but this is just one in particular. And that um, whenever we are, are picking a movie to watch, we never really agree much on movies. In fact, the, the place that we most need marriage counseling is out in front of that red box in front of the Kroger. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Um, because whenever we want to watch a movie, I want to watch something really intense, something that really provokes you, where you just kind of, after it's over, you just want to sit there for about a half hour and just like recover. And Courtney's always wanting to watch something, you know, cute and, and lovey and happy and fun. She wants to cuddle up next to me on the couch. She doesn't really want to have nightmares for the next three weeks. So when we talk movies, I'm thinking like Saving Private Ryan or The Road or, or these really intense films. And, and she's thinking, I don't even know, something romantic comedy, something like that. And I realized this week that that's really one of the reasons why I, I love this book. Because that's what we have going on here in the book of Jonah. You see, that, that, that verse, chapter 3, verse 10, seems like the perfect ending, doesn't it? It brings everything to this clear closure, this happy ending of the city of Nineveh repenting. And if anything, we'd expect just one more verse after that where it says, And Jonah walked back to Jerusalem praising God for what he had done delivering this great city and bringing them to follow him. I mean, that's what you would expect. 
this nice bit of closure, this nice story. And what we see here actually in chapter 4 is something dramatically different. We see something provoking, something shocking. Like this last bonus scene at the end of the film where we find out that the, the hero was actually the villain. Where we find out that there was actually this much deeper plot line going on the whole time. And then where we're just left without any closure or any real clarity. But we are the ones that are provoked and think to respond. And so this real intense chapter here in chapter 4 comes out of nowhere. But that's the real beauty of this book. And, and, and Jonah is really the only prophetic book in the whole Bible that centers more on the prophet's life than it does on the prophet's message. It's all about what God is doing in and through Jonah than it really is about what God's saying through Jonah's mouth. And what that tells us is that God is radically proclaiming the gospel message to us, but he's proclaiming it through the life of a rebellious servant far more than he's proclaiming it to us through the words of a servant. And so as we read it, we've again and again, week after week, seen ourselves in Jonah, see ourselves in his rebellion, seen ourselves in his, his obstinate, like, just rebellion against God. And so here, we kind of see ourselves exposed as God questions Jonah. As God graciously but firmly goes deep into Jonah's heart and peels him back layer by layer, questioning him and laying his true heart exposed, but also exposing God's radical redeeming grace in the process. So also another point here is that we, are, we live in a culture and a time where we find God's wrath extremely hard to swallow, extremely hard to stomach. In fact, I'd be willing to bet that, that none of you have ever heard a sermon on God's wrath. Come back next week because you're gonna hear three weeks in a row on God's wrath. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> but we're, we're a culture where we, we find that hard to stomach. I mean, it seems so archaic. I mean, it seems like you're talking about Zeus and his lightning bolt when you talk about God's wrath. But we see here that Jonah's struggle, Jonah's issue with God was the exact opposite. Jonah couldn't stomach God's grace. The thing that Jonah found so offensive, so absurd, so evil about God was his grace. He could not understand how a righteous judge could forgive his enemies. And Jonah is furious about it. So look back with me at chapter 3, verse 10. We read, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented from the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So this entire city, the most evil, violent city on earth, the city that was existing to destroy God's people in Israel, repents radically repents, 120,000 people repent and turn from evil toward God. And as they do that, God spares the destruction he had planned. And so this whole city is saved, not only from destruction, but they're saved from their evil and they're saved to follow the living God. And Jonah is furious 
And I love what Tim Keller says about this. He says that we come to this point where we're provoked to ask this deeply theological question. We see the redemption of an entire city and, and, and Jonah's response of fury and we're, we're brought to the theological question of, huh? What? Like, Jonah, this, you've reached the, the highest point of your, your prophetic career. You've brought about the redemption of the Gentiles and brought them in to the, the people of God. And Jonah's furious. And so we can easily get to this impression that Jonah's this moping child, that he's just kind of pouting, that he's sad that he didn't get his way, that it's just kind of this, this shallow little whiny child. But it's much more intense than that. Because the actual translation of chapter four, verse one, where we read that, that, it, that it displeased Jonah, the actual translation of that is, but it was an exceedingly great evil to Jonah. God's grace on the city of Nineveh was an exceedingly great evil to Jonah. So Jonah is calling God evil for what he's done. And he continues his attack actually in prayer in verse two when we read, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He, almost with venom on his lips, he's accusing God. Jonah's angry with God because he's gracious and merciful, but it's actually much deeper than that. He's angry with God because Jonah's saying that God is unjust. How do we see that here? Well, actually, Jonah is quoting scripture when he says this back to, back to God. Jonah's quoting Exodus 34, verses six and seven. Turn with me real quick there. I think it might actually be on the, the screen as well. In Exodus 34, verses six and seven, let me give some quick backstory here. This is the, the, the point in Exodus where Moses is on the Mount Sinai meeting before God and, and, and Moses has begged God to show him his glory, to reveal his very nature to, to himself. And so Moses has been begging God for this and God responds and this is the moment in verse six where God actually descends on the mountain and passes by Moses revealing his very nature, his very character revealing himself and passes by Moses. And, and in verse six we read that the Lord passed before him and proclaimed and this is what God proclaimed of his name and his character to Moses. He proclaims the Lord, the Lord, a gracious and merciful I'm uh, sorry, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving inequity for transgressions and sins, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So do you see the parallel there between what Jonah said, God, I knew this was who you were, and what God actually had revealed to Moses for, for who he is? It's this radical parallel. Jonah is, is quoting scripture, but what did he leave off? What did he leave off? He left off the part where God in, in no uncertain terms declares, I will by no means clear the guilty. The part where God says, I will punish those who do evil. And so Jonah 
says to God, and he's screaming at God through his silence. He's screaming at God saying, God, I knew you were merciful and gracious. I knew you were slow to anger, but you're a liar because you clear the guilty. I just watched it happen. You just forgave 120,000 people who hate you. Dirty pagans who want to destroy your people. Jonah's saying to God, you are a liar. You are unjust. And I want nothing to do with you. So just let me die. It's much more intense than just a whiny little child. This is a war that's waging between Jonah and God. Jonah hates God at this moment. Jonah's declaring God as unjust. Or as Tim Keller puts it, he's saying, God, I knew you were promiscuous with your love. You're cheating on your people with the ones that want to destroy us. How dare you? And so Jonah here has lost his entire identity. He's lost his identity as a prophet. And we find out that actually his true God, his self-righteousness that lets him say, I deserve favor, is being threatened. And so his idols of pride, of, 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 of self-righteousness are being threatened and attacked. And so Jonah just says, I want to die. I have no reason to live anymore, God. I have nothing left, so please kill me. So Jonah takes words of worship and he uses them to accuse God. And the the incredible irony here is the very aspects of God's nature that led to Jonah's deliverance and salvation in chapter two, those very aspects of God's character that led Jonah to praise God in chapter two are the aspects of his character that he's accusing him and that he's saying he hates him for in chapter four. His heart is so like the elder brother in the parable of the two sons. That heart that says, I deserve your favor. I have always been here, God. I have always done what you asked and now you're letting them in? How dare you? And so Jonah, like the elder brother, his heart of self-righteousness is exposed here. And we see this tragic heart condition. And now God, in incredible grace, is going to start pursuing Jonah once again. And he's going to question him three times. And he's going to peel him back layer by layer, exposing his sin and exposing God's grace. So three times he's going to be questioned. And in the process, we're actually, it's going to be a little painful because our hearts are going to be exposed as well. So the first, in verse four, the Lord asks, do you do well to be angry? God is questioning Jonah's emotion, Jonah's feeling. He's doing the thing that none of us ever do, which is actually question our emotion. It's amazing how often when I'm meeting with people and they're struggling through issues in their life, you know, they'll just sound off and be like, I'm sorry, that's just how I feel. It's as if the thing is, it doesn't matter what's true, but this is how I feel. 
So this informs me on what's true. And God is actually questioning that in Jonah. He's saying, do you have a right to feel that way? Because we are a people who have learned to never question our emotions. Instead, we just look for someone or something to blame our emotions on. You know, it's because someone at work threw me under the bus. That's why I'm so angry. Or some idiot was driving in front of me and cut me off. Or it's because, you know, it, it's, my, it's my wife. She's nagging at me all the time. That's why I'm like this. Or, no, it's because my husband, he, he hasn't done that simple project that he said he would have done five months ago. That's why. That's why I'm angry all the time. Or you can at least always resort to blaming it on your parents. So we always have something to blame. And maybe, it, maybe it's not someone, maybe it's just something. Maybe it's, I'm in a bad mood because I didn't sleep well last night. Or because my car broke down. Or because, because it's Monday. If you're angry and unhappy or afraid, it's always someone else's fault. Amen? But then the dramatic irony is if you're happy and relaxed and in a good mood then that's just because you're a delightful person. You see, we often think of our true selves as being that self when we're well-fed, well-rested, everything's gone perfect at work, we got the recognition we deserved. That's our true self. That's the real me. But when I sin, when I'm angry, well, that's just because... There's always some reason that we can point to. And that leads people like me to say ridiculous things like, I'm not really an impatient person. I just hate waiting when I'm in a hurry. I'm not really an angry person. It just really frustrates me when people do stupid stuff. It's not that I'm ungracious. I just have no tolerance for when people can't do simple things right. We say absurd things like this. And now get ready, because this is gonna sting a little bit. If long lines or traffic frustrate you, it's because you are an impatient person. If the waiter getting your order wrong makes you mad, it's because you are an ungracious person. If someone else getting the recognition that you think you deserve really gnaws at you and frustrates you, it's not because you just like to have truth be clarified. It's because you are a prideful person. our circumstances reveal the true nature of our heart. It's silly to claim that I'm patient when I don't have to wait on something. Or I'm gracious when everything goes my way. Or I'm humble when people are praising my accomplishments. It's ridiculous. And I do this all the time. When I come home from an intense day at work and my wife asks me for help, and I respond in frustration, basically projecting that, don't you know what I do? Don't you know how big of a deal I am? 
Don't you know how many people have depended on me all day and now I have to come home and wash dishes? I'm projecting on her. I'm proclaiming that I am better than this. And if I'm angry, then I can always blame it on, well, I just had a busy day. Or if it was just really frustrating. And I never really then have to deal with the fact that it's because I am a sinful person. And this is why we desperately need to rejoice in our sufferings. Because the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. Our circumstances reveal the true nature of our heart. The same difficult circumstances, the same suffering, can lead one person to turn to God and praise him for his grace while leading another person to turn from God and proclaiming his evil. Your circumstances provide the context for the sin that is already in you to come out. Your circumstances aren't to blame for your sin. Your circumstances just provided the place for you to find out what was already in your heart. So when you're in traffic and you get angry, you're having the opportunity to have the sin in your heart revealed. So far from being the cause to blame our sin on, our circumstances reveal our true selves. And they reveal our need for God's grace. So the reality too is though, is our circumstances are always going to affect our emotions. Our circumstances are always going to affect us. They're gonna reveal what's in our heart. And the question that we need to ask is the very question that God's asking Jonah is do I have a right to be angry? Do I do well to be angry? Does my anger flow from a love for God's righteousness, a love for justice and care on others, or does it flow for a love for my righteousness and a love for my comfort? So our our circumstances allow us to see if we have the right to be angry. Is my anger flowing from a love for God or from a love of self? So let's go back to Jonah because that's just about the context of being questioned in your emotions. We have some more specific things that we can learn through God's questioning. So God asked Jonah if he has any right to be angry at his grace for forgiving Nineveh. And Jonah doesn't give a clear answer yet, but his actions show that he says, yes, I do have every right to be angry. You see, Jonah is tribal rather than missional. Jonah believes that God owes him and his people grace and a good, comfortable life. He believes that they deserve it. And so that basically they just need to circle the wagons, build higher walls to keep the sinners out and stay busy until Jesus comes back. He believes that God's grace is for people of his tribe. And so the idea of outsiders being brought in to relationship with God is offensive to him because they aren't nice people. They didn't grow up in a good neighborhood. They didn't go to good schools. They aren't as good of a person as I am. They haven't always been following you like I have. And so if God's grace is for anyone, then that's not a community that I want to have any part of. And we see that because what does Jonah do? 
He packs up his stuff. He heads out of town. He finds a hill overlooking the city and he builds a little man versus wild styled hut. And he camps out waiting to see what God's going to do to Nineveh. He sits there waiting, hoping that God's wrath still comes. And so the question that we must ask ourselves is, are we tribal or are we missional? What does that mean? In other words, do we exist for self-preservation or for self-sacrifice? Because you see, a tribal church looks at the world and first fears how the world might affect and change them. A missional church looks at the world and first wonders how can we affect and change the world. A tribal church tries very, it's very hard for a newcomer to be welcomed in and included into the community, to be accepted, because they, accept, they, they expect the outsider to take the initiative and to adapt to them. A missional church takes the initiative to the outsider and seeks in any way allowed by scripture to adapt to the outsider. Missional churches exist for the mission of God, whereas tribal churches exist for themselves. And so before you say, Brad, it's okay, we're a missional church. I read the right books, believe me. Know that that is a call to go to the people that you hate. To be a missional church, that's a call to go to your Nineveh. And of course, none of us would use the word of the people we hate because we're all good Christians, right? We don't hate anyone. We just have people that we really, really don't like. People that we can never imagine sitting around our dinner table with us. People that make us uncomfortable. People that we don't really want to be a part of. People that we don't really want to pursue. And so if you're going to say, yes, let's be a missional church, that's a call to go to the very people that you desperately want to avoid. So if we're gonna follow Jesus, then that's a call to lay down our lives, our preferences for the lost. Because the the dramatic irony is this, that when a church starts to exist for itself and to preserve itself, it's already dead. But when a church lays down its life for the lives of the lost, We see the reality of what Jesus talked about in Luke 17, 33. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. So let's keep reading. Definitely, though, I urge you to spend some time in prayer on that and really let that read you and read your heart this week. So verse five. Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on his head so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, 
I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And so Jonah's sitting here waiting outside of Nineveh. And now Nineveh is in modern day Iraq. It gets very, very hot there. Like 110, 115 degrees hot. And then also at the same time, so while, while he was sitting in this little hut to give him shade, God then appoints a plant to add to his shade. Yet in the process, God then sends a worm to eat the plant and destroy it. He then appoints this this east wind, this wind that would come down through Iran, all the way through the desert, and then hit Nineveh. And this wasn't just like a summer breeze. This was a 60 mile an hour wind, whipping up sand and heat. It was like a hairdryer in his face in the middle of the desert. Just destroying his shelter, ruining him. And it's in that point that he's, he's calling out to God, God, just let me die, please. And it, and it seems cruel because why did God allow this plant to grow up in a day, give him all this great shade, this great comfort? Jonah is exceedingly happy because of the plant. Jonah, it's just made Jonah's day. And then the next day, the plant is dead, withered next to him. So why? I mean, it just seems cruel. Why would he give him this shade and this this grace only to take it away from him the very next day? Well, we actually find out in verse six where God, it, it says he appoints a plant to grow up and give him more shade. And it says to save him from his discomfort. Now discomfort here has a double meaning. Discomfort can mean discomfort as it does here shade for him, to, to, to shelter him from the heat. But this is also the exact same word, chapter 1, one verse 2, and chapter 3, verse 10, for sin and wickedness. So we see here God saying, he appointed a plant to, rate, to grow up to deliver Jonah from his discomfort, but also from his wickedness. This plant grew up and its shade delivered Jonah from his discomfort. But this plant's death delivered Jonah from his wickedness. Let's dig into that because it's, it's a pretty shocking process to see how God graciously exposed even deeper into Jonah's heart. God is showing Jonah how selfish he really is in order to call him to repent. You see, Jonah is furious now over the death of the plant. How quickly the world owed him something that didn't even exist a day before. Something he had nothing to do with tending or growing up or caring for. Now when it's gone, Jonah thinks he has every right to be angry over its death. And so God asks him again, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And now finally Jonah speaks up and he says, yes, God, yes, I do well. I have every right to be angry. And not only that, but I have a right to be angry enough to die. And so after everything, after seeing the greatest city in the world repent and turn to God, after seeing God's grace on him through the storm and through the fish, it's here with the death of a plant that finally Jonah's reached the real depth of his bitterness. He values plants more than people. 
He values the comfort that this plant gave him more than the eternal state of more than 120,000 people. And now listen, because this hit me like a ton of bricks and I only pray that it will hit you as well. We all do the exact same thing. We are all more emotionally wrapped up in the things that bring us comfort than we are at the eternal state of our neighbors and the city. If you don't believe me, then just ask yourself, what bothers you more? What moves you to cry out to God more? Your car breaking down? Or your neighbor's unbelief? What stresses you out more? Losing your phone? Or sex trafficking going on in the city? What really causes you to lose sleep more? Your plummeting property value? Or the eternal state of a city of millions of people who hate God? Now, I'm not saying that it's wrong for us to care about those things. But it truly shows us what we think our true God and our true mission is. And like Jonah, it's our comfort. It's our ease of life. And so like Jonah, we get exposed here when we see him in fury because something that brought him comfort was taken from him while he could very easily go back to the city and find shade and probably disciple and care for 120,000 new believers that have no idea how to follow God. So listen to this quote by St. Augustine because I thought it was just beautiful. In the city of God, we will walk on gold and love people, while in the city of man, we love gold and walk on people. So let that really dig deep into your heart and expose your your true God and bring you to repentance, bring you to desire and seek transformation to truly love God and his mission. Because that's exactly what God is doing. He's painfully revealing Jonah's heart to himself so Jonah can experience grace. So here, Jonah's at the height of his bitterness against God and how, how obviously, now obviously I don't know the tone of God when he says this, but Jonah is at the height of his anger against God. And I just imagine God kneeling down and with firmness, yet beautiful gentleness, speak to Jonah and say, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in the night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? So God is saying, Jonah, you are consumed with yourself. You pity a plant that brought you comfort while hating 120,000 people that I created to bring me glory. 
You did nothing to make this plant, but I did everything to make this city. Should I not be able to pity that city? And he says that these people, they don't know the right hand from the left hand. That's kind of a strange thing. He's he's not saying that the, the Ninevites were stupid or that they were just children or that they never watched Sesame Street to learn the right from the left. He, he, he's saying this is actually an idiom referring to not being able to discern between what is clean and what is unclean. Now you see, way back in this time, before they had you know, hand soap, Purell, even two-ply toilet paper, they would have to take care of their business using their left hand. That left their right hand to eat with. So when they would go out to eat, when they would shake hands and meet people, they would use their right hand. It was their clean hand. When they had to take care of business, they would use their left hand. So God here is saying they're unable to discern between what is clean and what is unclean. They're unable to discern what is right and what's wrong. Now he's not saying that they're, that they're beyond being responsible for their actions. He's just saying they lack discernment. And so he's calling out to Jonah, why can't I pity them? Shouldn't you? Shouldn't you seek to proclaim the gospel to them? And the most shocking thing here in this whole book, after, after God gently appeals to Jonah, gently exposes the radical grace that this whole book was tied up in, the uncomfortable grace of God saying, yes, this city is radically sinful, Jonah. I know more than you ever will. But can I not still love them in grace? He appeals to it and then what happens? The book ends with a question mark. It also ends with saying, and much cattle, which is just the strangest ending of, the, of a book in the Bible. I, I have no idea where to go with that. But never the, it ends with a question mark. It ends questioning that. And then we're left looking, where did Jonah go? What happened? What, what, what did he do? What did he say? What, what happened to the story? And we see the brilliance of the story in that moment. Because in the moment that God is appealing to the deepest question he has, the most radically exposing question, all of a sudden Jonah's nowhere to be found and we're standing alone being questioned by God. Do you see that there? This question mark, Jonah's gone and we're standing alone laid bare before God. All along through this story, God's shown us how Jonah's heart is our heart. And here he's showing us that his question for Jonah is his question for us. And so when we get all wrapped up in what happened to Jonah, we truly miss the point because this book is not a book about the question, about the the character of Jonah. This book is a book about the character of God. A book about the character of God who has radical grace for evil sinners. And we see this radical grace poured out on a rebellious and evil prophet, on a rebellious and evil people. And as we read it, we see grace poured out on a rebellious and evil us.
You see, just this morning, we've been exposed about our anger and our entitlement, about how we use our, our, our circumstances to justify our sin. As being tribal, as being existing for our own preferences, our own pride, our own uh, preservation. And mostly for being, loving our own comfort and our own stuff more than we love people created in God's image for his glory. And so we see God's radical grace exposed. We see grace on the religious person who thinks that they deserve it exposed. And we see the beauty of that character beckoning us to repent and come to him and find life. But there's still one question that remains. How is it possible for a God of justice to clear the guilty? The same question that Jonah, that accused God right there in in, in verse two, it still remains. God declares his grace, says that he desires to have pity, declares the sinfulness of this city and exposes the sinfulness of Jonah and has grace on them. But the question still remains, how can God be just? And doesn't he, isn't he clearing the guilty here? And that question points to a time when God will take care of the guilty where God will carry out his wrath. And we see the uncontainable loving grace of God along with the uncompromising justice of God. We see those two things come together in perfect beauty on the cross of Christ. We see a God who is unrelenting in his, in his grace and his pursuit and his love for sinners, along with a God who is uncompromising in his justice and his wrath on sin. And we see those two things come together, colliding in perfect beauty on the cross of Christ. Do you see the beauty of the gospel in this? That the more... that. Think on this. You are more sinful than you could ever imagine. But in Christ, you are more accepted and more loved than you could ever dare believe. That's what the cross shows us. That's what we learn through Jonah. That we don't have to minimize our sin. We don't have to sidestep it. And we don't have to minimize God's justice. Because the cross shows us that no matter how deeply we think our sin goes, we aren't even scratching the surface. But at the same time, no no matter how loving and accepting and caring we imagine God to be, it's completely insufficient. His love is greater still. His grace is greater still. And his grace is transforming us still. And so the cross shows us a standard of righteousness and justice that would make Jonah blush. Yet it also shows us a standard of grace and loving redemption that the the nation of Nineveh didn't even dare imagine 
as they were repenting. And so you see, we don't have to hide from God because he is both just and justifier. We read in, in Romans 3, 23 to 26. Just listen to this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, saying God put forward to bear my wrath so that I might be gracious towards a sinner, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Do you get what he's saying there? That the cross of Christ showed that God was still righteous because throughout all of the Old Testament, God had passed over sin. So the problem with the Old Testament isn't the wrathful God, it's the fact that God had been gracious all along without actually fully dealing with sin. I know that's really deep, but think on that for a second. That, that God's justice is brought into question because of stories like what he did here to Nineveh. Because he delivered Nineveh, he passed over their sins. But on the cross, it shows God's righteousness it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So get this. Nineveh's repentance was because Christ's body was broken. Jonah's repentance was because the blood was sh shed. Just like our repentance is because Christ died taking on our sin and giving us his life. So in closing, I, I just wanna point us to a couple quick things. First off, this book radically shows us that the Christian life is not a repented life, but a repenting life. Now, we ask the question, we see the, the end of this book, what happened to Jonah? And I just said that we kind of miss the point when we get obsessed on that point. But I also want to, I believe that Jonah repented. Why? Because we have the book of Jonah. In order for us to have this book, he either had to write it or he had to tell someone. And to expose himself in such a way as he does in this book I know of no other way other than someone who's clinging to the radical grace of God to show such deep vulnerability to their own sinfulness. So I, I, I believe Jonah repented. And I think that that shows us that the Christian life is a life of continual repentance. That yes, we are, are saved in a moment when we turn to Christ, but in his kindness and grace, we're invited back again and again and again into repentance to live in the transformation that he had already purchased for us on the Christ. And that shows us that our salvation exists in three tenses. We were saved from the penalty of sin. When Jesus died his death on the cross, we were saved from the penalty of sin. The moment we trust in that, it's said and done with. 
the penalty of sin no more, never again can bring condemnation on those who are in Christ Jesus. But we are also being saved from the power of sin. The Christian life, the one of ongoing repentance, is one where we're continuing to be delivered by God's grace and continuing to be saved from the power of sin over us as we renew ourselves day by day and experiencing that transforming grace that we call sanctification. And then the third tense is that we will be saved one day from the presence of sin. We can look forward into Christ in hope, in a wonderful hope, knowing that one day sin will be no more. One day this tormenting sin that constantly is gnawing at us will be no more. And so if we forget any one of those tenses, then we're going to be left to either being rocked by guilt because we don't think we're delivered from the, the, the penalty of sin, to either be a constant feeling of defeat and frustration and fear because we constantly feel that we have no hope of being delivered from the power of sin, or we're going to have no hope for our ultimate salvation because we'll never look forward to being delivered from the presence of sin. So remember and hear this and learn this from Jonah, that we are saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin and one day we will be completely saved from the presence of sin in our lives, amen? And so let me urge you guys to join with me in persevering in repentance, to know that our salvation like the nation of, uh, of Nineveh and like Jonah is found because we worship a kind God who by grace saves us, who lived the perfect life that we never could, the perfect life that while Jonah thought he deserved righteousness, the only one who ever deserved God's favor was Jesus Christ. And he lived it so that we might, it might be credited to our account that our sin has been covered by Christ's blood. That the kindness of God, that the grace of God knows no bounds, that no matter how great our sin is, his mercy and grace is greater still. And so if you are a sinner and have never turned from your sin to Christ, or if you have been saved and yet you are continuing to, to struggle through your sin, no matter where you're at, know that the gospel promises your salvation. And the gospel is what we proclaim to live in light of it. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you that your loving grace loves us enough to expose the sin in our heart. Lord, let us be humble enough, bold enough to let this passage, to let your truth here read us throughout this week. Expose our idols of, of, of selfishness, of indifference towards others. Let it expose the people that are our Ninevehs, that are the people that we hate. Lord, let your grace expose the comforts that we cherish more than you. Let it expose our idols. 
But God, let that happen, not that we might despair, Lord. Save anyone who's trusting in you and your grace from a moment of desperation, of despair, because of the sin that we see in our hearts, that we see revealed. And rather, let it lead us to repent, to turn, and to rejoice. To rejoice that we have a God who is so relentless in his grace that he would take our sin upon himself, take our punishment, our penalty, and die on a tree so that we might have new life, so that we might live eternally from the power and presence of sin, rejoicing in your presence by your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.